0: You're listening to the Corbett Report. Corbettreport.com.
1: <laughs> Henry Cousinger.
2: Welcome, my friends, welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you as always from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this first day of November. 2009. I'd like to welcome all my listeners back to the Corbett Report and invite them as always to check into the websites corbettreport.com, al qaeda and reportagebook.com, where you can find out more information about the Corbett Report's forthcoming book, Reportage, Essays on the New World Order. And for those who are keeping score at home, ReportageBook.com was updated this week with some new information, including the audio of our recent interview with Captain Jack of Badlands Radio. So once again, keep an eye on ReportageBook.com as more information becomes available on my forthcoming book. Also, I'd like to encourage my listeners once again to keep an eye on the website for updates to our regular YouTube series, Economics 101, and The New World Next Week being released each Monday and Thursday. There will not be an episode of Economics 101 released this week, as I'm still setting up some interviews with some economics experts, but in its place, I'll be releasing an excerpt from my recent interview with Lord Monckton of Brenchley about the Copenhagen Treaty. And this is an important interview, so I certainly hope my listeners will spread the word about it. And now, without further ado, let's get to today's real news. Today's first real news story comes from the Corbett Report, 27th of October 2009. Death by Treaty, Lord Moncton on the Crisis of Copenhagen. In an interview with the Corbett Report today, Lord Moncton of Brenchley went further than ever before in describing what is so worrying about the new climate change treaty that UN Framework Convention on Climate Change signatories are getting set to commit to this December. This treaty is designed under the name, of course, of pretending that there is a problem with climate, he said. It's aiming to set up a world government that will have the power to control all the world's financial and other markets. The draft text of the treaty, released earlier this month, contains clauses that make it a threat not only to national sovereignty, but to the liberty and democracy of the signatories. I think the reason they are doing this is that it gives the dictators complete control over the economies of all nations, Lord Moncton told the Corbett Report via cell phone. Lord Moncton is by no means the only one sounding the alarm on Copenhagen or its agenda. As we have pointed out before, the redistribution of wealth to lesser developed nations in the name of reducing carbon is neither a redistribution of wealth to lesser developed nations, nor will it reduce carbon. Carbon trading is, to the contrary, a scheme being set up by and for elite banking interests and others of Malthusian bent. Today's second real news story comes from the NewAmerican.com, 28th of October 2009. NSA supercenters to store Americans' private data permanently. The National Security Agency is building huge new storage facilities to store the unconstitutionally gained data on the American people's telephone calls and internet traffic permanently, including new buildings in suburban Salt Lake City, Utah, and San Antonio, Texas. The NSA has been keeping permanent records of all Americans' telephone call habits and internet traffic since shortly after September 11, 2001, according to major news reports, without the constitutionally-required warrants from a court. No longer able to store all the intercepted phone calls and email in its Fort Meade, Maryland headquarters, the NSA is engaging in its own housing boom. How much data will these giant, multi-billion dollar new facilities hold? According to James Bamford of the New York Review of Books, the facility in Utah alone could hold data that will be measured in yottabytes. Never heard of yottabytes? You're not alone. Most computers sold at stores still measure their storage at gigabytes, or billions of bits of data. A few store a terabyte of information, or one trillion bits of information. Yottabytes is the highest number that has yet been named in computer information. The number is septillions of billions of bits of data. Today's third real news story comes from CNN.com, 29th of October 2009 passport with 9/11 suspect's name found in Pakistan A passport bearing the name of Saeed Bahaji, a suspect linked to the September 11th attacks on New York and Washington, has been found in a town captured by Pakistani military. The passport was found in South Waziristan, where the Pakistani military has been battling to wrest territory from the Taliban in Pakistan. It contained a Pakistani visa issued in August 2001 showing that the bearer entered Pakistan on September 4, 2001, and appeared unusually new for a document eight years old. CNN has not independently confirmed its authenticity. Today's fourth real news story comes from the Sunday Express, 28th of October 2009. Secret plan for euro income tax. Secret plans to seize more than £4 billion a year from Britain and make its citizens pay taxes direct to Europe emerged last night. The leaked proposals, seen by the Daily Express, state that Britain should lose the billions of pounds in rebate that were agreed by Margaret Thatcher 25 years ago. The plans, with a foreword by European Union Commissioner José Manuel Barroso, would cost every British family at least £155 a year. They would also mean Brussels being given the power to dip straight into taxpayers' pockets. Today's next Real News story comes from the New York Times, October 27, 2009. Brother of Afghan leader said to be paid by CIA. Ahmed Wali Karzai, the brother of the Afghan president and a suspected player in the country's booming illegal opium trade, Gets regular payments from the Central Intelligence Agency, and has for much of the past eight years, according to current and former American officials. The agency pays Mr. Karzai for a variety of services, including helping to recruit an Afghan paramilitary force that operates at the CIA's direction in and around the southern city of Kandahar, Mr. Karzai's home. The financial ties and close-working relationship between the intelligence agency and Mr. Karzai raise significant questions about America's war strategy, which is currently under review at the White House. The ties to Mr. Karzai have created deep divisions within the Obama administration. The critics say the ties complicate America's increasingly tense relationship with President Hamid Karzai, who has struggled to build sustained popularity among Afghans, and has long been portrayed by the Taliban as an American puppet. The CIA's practices also suggest that the United States is not doing everything in its power to stamp out the lucrative Afghan drug trade, a major source of revenue for the Taliban. Welcome, my friends, to episode 106 of The Corbett Report, Meet Henry Kissinger. Oh, Henry Kissinger, you mean that lovable scamp from season 5, episode 10 of The Simpsons, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Legalized Gambling. Thank you so much for visiting our plant, Dr. Kissinger. It was fun. Well, I'll let you know if your glasses turn up. No, not that Henry Kissinger. This one.
3: The problem of the Bush presidency will be the emergence of a new international order. Within the next four
4: years we will see the emergence of a new international order. The beginning, the beginning. Are we at one of those moments in history in which there is uh, the necessity for a new world order? A, because of what's taken place in the Middle East, the rise of, of different kinds of groups, and B, what's happened in Asia Meaning that the, the there has been a shift from
3: the West to the East. Uh, there's a need for a new world order, but it has different characteristics in different parts of of the world. I think his task will be to develop an overall strategy for America in this period. When really a New World Order can be created, it's a great opportunity. It isn't just a crisis.
2: Yes, exactly as was the case when we started to scratch the veneer of perpetual Washington insiders Zbigniew Brzezinski and Donald Rumsfeld in previous episodes of this podcast, we find that, no, it does not take much scratching of the veneer of Henry Kissinger to reveal, yes, the New World Order. And in Henry Kissinger's case, it's actually quite simple once you start to put the pieces together of his public statements, policies, and various wheelings and dealings that, yes, in fact, his version of the New World Order is very much on its face, one that is ruled by and for the interests of a very select few in the name of global order and security. Perhaps unsurprisingly, someone of the political baggage and history of Henry A. Kissinger brings with him a lot of baggage and a lot of preconceptions and misconceptions about his public record. There are certain things that, of course, many members of the audience will already know about Henry Kissinger, and of course, many people will have already seen some of the, even the mainstream media attacks on Henry Kissinger, but... Let's start to get an idea of his real record and some of the things that he really accomplished by turning to a book from 1976 by Gary Allen, the author of books such as None Dare Call It Conspiracy and The Rockefeller File, both, of course, essential books in coming to an understanding of the New World Order. And he also wrote a book entitled Kissinger, all about Henry Kissinger and his accomplishments as of 1976. So, quoting from Gary Allen's Kissinger, quote, Who, after all, is Henry Kissinger? He is not, to begin with, Henry Kissinger. He was born Heinz Alfred Kissinger on May 27th, 1923, in Firth, Germany, the son of Louis Kissinger, a schoolteacher and rabbi, and the former Paula Stern. Like many Jewish families feeling the rising impact of Nazism, the Kissinger family fled Germany to the United States in 1938. Already a skilled debater, when he arrived in America at the age of 15, Heinz now Henry, did well in rhetoric and other fields as a high school student in New York City. When he graduated with honors, he said that his highest ambition was to be an accountant. But fate in the form of World War II intervened. Drafted into the U.S. Army in 1943, a process which also made him an American citizen. The young Kissinger was discovered by a fellow German refugee, Dr. Fritz Kramer. Kramer served in American military intelligence and got Kissinger promoted into the 970th Counterintelligence Detachment. When hostilities ceased, Kissinger's special position enabled him to become the virtual dictator of a German town, where he commandeered a villa and began living in the Grand Manor. He administered an entire district and, as a civil service employee, received the then-considerable salary of $10,000 per year. Henry ruled his quasi-fiefdom until April 1946, when he was transferred to the European Command Intelligence School. It was during this period as intelligence gatherer and interrogator, one defecting communist double agent has claimed, that Kissinger himself was recruited by the KGB and given the codename "Bohr. After leaving the army, Kissinger enrolled at Harvard University, majoring in government and securing four scholarships. It can be argued that Heinz, or Henry, had already been tapped by important people as a man with a future. Competition for admission to Harvard is always super stiff, but in 1946, with all the veterans trying to squeeze in, it was incredible. Yet Little Hines, the refugee, not only gained admission, but had his education paid in full by multiple scholarships. Harvard was the turning point in Kissinger's life, assuming, of course, that a more sinister turning point had not already occurred in his army intelligence days in post-war Germany through a working relationship with Soviet agents. With the help of a grant from the Rockefeller Foundation Fellowship for Political Theory, The bright young ex-intelligence officer graduated from Harvard in 1950, but Kissinger did not stop there. He received his MA in 1952 and a doctorate in 1954. His dream of becoming an accountant was obviously fading faster than bookings for a return voyage on the Titanic. Somehow, somewhere, something happened to her Kissinger along the academic way. First came the grant from the Rockefellers, Then, while he was working on his master's, Kissinger was made executive director of the Harvard International Seminar, a student exchange program which was later found to be financed by the Central Intelligence Agency. While working toward his doctorate, he was employed on numerous occasions as a consultant for various government agencies. Kissinger apparently made a favorable impression on those members of the eastern liberal establishment who look for the reliable bright young men. With the support of his mentor, Professor William Elliott, a well-connected establishmentarian, Henry was ushered into that repository of power and prestige, the elusive secretive Council on Foreign Relations, perhaps the nation's most important and influential organization. At the same time, he also became affiliated with the Rockefeller Brothers Trust Fund. For a young German immigrant still hampered by a heavy accent, Kissinger had obviously arrived. If the House of Rockefeller approved him, who could say him nine? Kissinger got into the governmental advisory business under Democratic President John F. Kennedy. He served as a special consultant to JFK during the Berlin crisis, and also was appointed to the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency. The services Kissinger had begun for Kennedy were continued for his successor. Henry represented the Johnson administration on three secret missions to Vietnam, two of them to North Vietnam, But while serving these two Democratic presidents, Henry was also the key foreign policy advisor to Republican Nelson Rockefeller. In fact, it was even reported that Kissinger, who never had a good word to say about Richard Nixon prior to his appointment by him, wept openly when Nelson Rockefeller lost his 1968 bid to garner the Republican nomination for president. According to an account by United Press International, Kissinger was reluctant to accept Nixon's surprise offer of a presidential appointment. Rockefeller, Kay's employer for ten years, made up his mind for him, according to UPI, when he told Henry that if he did not accept it, never talk to me again. Later, during a party celebrating Henry Kissinger's 50th birthday, Rocky toasted his longtime employee, saying that he'd been associated with him in three presidential campaigns, and we succeeded in the third. Henry went to the White House. Henry's sadness at leaving the direct employment of Rockefeller, a position that had seen his salary jump from $500 a month in July 1958 to a much more comfortable $4,000 a month a mere ten years later, was no doubt partially assuaged by Nelson's parting token of appreciation, a check for $50,000. Rockefeller later explained that he wanted to do something to help out a poor guy faced with tremendous obligations. Of course, if any other billionaire businessman did it, we would call it bribery. With Rockefeller, it's simply a nice gesture. Keep in mind that the Rockefellers own properties and do business in some 125 separate nations, including the Soviet Union and Red China. Every decision Kissinger would make in Washington was a potential conflict of interest involving his sponsor and benefactor Rockefeller. Yet even in the wake of Watergate, when the gift was revealed at Rocky's vice presidential confirmation hearings, the story caused no more splash than a leaf falling from a tree. The TV anchorman did not even mention it. In tracing Henry's meteoric rise from obscurity to international acclaim, we see that his magic slippers had the Rockefeller label. From Henry's membership in the Rockefeller CFR while a professor at Harvard, to his association with a host of Rockefeller-connected activities, to his appointment in Washington, even to his second marriage, the Rockefeller power, prestige, and influence were paving the way for him. End quote. Well, I always encourage my listeners to check things for themselves and never to trust merely one source on such a contentious issue, so why trust the crazy, raving conspiracy theorist Gary Allen when we could trust, for example, the Toledo Blade? And due to the miracles of the age of Google, which truly is digitizing the sum of all human knowledge in something akin to the Library of Alexandria, which is at once... Wondrous and horrifying, but we may as well use it while we can. We can now search news.google.com to find an online reproduction of the Toledo Blade from December 9th, 1980, which is only partially blocked out in some key passages. And we can read an interesting article, which ran under the headline, Kissinger, a Rockefeller agent, question mark. And that reads in part, quote, Those who know the man say he does nothing gratuitously, All is programmed to advance his objectives. More than a few wary watchers suspect Mr. Kissinger is a Trojan horse planted by the Rockefeller interests inside the nation's highest councils. In the mid-1950s, he directed a series of foreign policy studies for the Rockefeller... And then there is one sentence blocked out. Continuing. Nelson Rockefeller's quest for the presidency in 1968. Newsmen seeking his foreign policy views would be told, Go see Henry. Later, Mr. Kissinger held back from entering Richard Nixon's administration until it was clear that Mr. Rockefeller would not be asked to join the cabinet. Even after Mr. Kissinger became a power in Washington, he remained deferential to Mr. Rockefeller. Associates recall, for instance, that Mr. Kissinger usually returned Mr. Rockefeller's calls ahead of the president's. In 1973, Mr. Rockefeller said of Mr. Kissinger, He's never let me down, and he's never let the country down. Their relationship was such that Mr. Rockefeller announced Mr. Kissinger's engagement to Nancy McGinnis and provided a plane for their honeymoon trip. Mr. Kissinger, meanwhile, brought David Rockefeller, chairman of the Chase Manhattan Bank, into the State Department as an advisor. When the Republicans were turned out in 1976, Mr. Rockefeller named Mr. Kissinger chairman of the Chase Manhattan's International Advisory Committee. In a series of columns four years ago, I identified the late shah of Iran as the leading drumbeater for a gigantic oil price increase. His megalomaniacal confidence that the United States would tolerate it rested on the delightful relationship he had developed with Henry Kissinger. Mr. Nixon and Mr. Kissinger sought to build up the shah as the protector of American interests in the Persian Gulf area, rather than face the difficulties of having the United States look after those interests more directly. They quietly agreed that the Shah should be allowed to raise more oil revenue to bankroll the vast responsibilities they were encouraging him to undertake. It was at least an intriguing coincidence that the Shah's stupendous oil profits were channeled largely through the Chase Manhattan Bank. The Shah insisted that all letters of credit for the purchase of oil go through Chase Manhattan, an Iranian oil official told me. End quote. I think the relationship between David Rockefeller, Nelson Rockefeller, and Henry A. Kissinger needs not be detailed in too much more detail. Of course, I would suggest that you go and do some of that research for yourself. And just as an aside, I'll throw in a Muckety map, which is an online relational map database, which will show that various interesting relations between Henry A. Kissinger and David Rockefeller Sr., who is, of course, one of the third generation of the Rockefeller dynasty, and someone that my listeners will know very well, of course, especially from episode 26, Meet the Rockefellers. But at any rate, given that a lot of Henry Kissinger's work in the 1950s and 60s was explicitly funded and endorsed by the Rockefeller, or the Rockefeller-founded and funded CFR, what exactly was Henry A. Kissinger advocating during that period? How do you regard our conduct in regard to the Algerian situation of the past few years?
5: I think the Algerian situation is an extremely complicated and difficult one. In general, we should stand for the freedom of, pe- of people. In general, we should oppose colonial regimes on the other hand we should come up with ideas which an independent Algeria cannot survive as a purely independent state the great paradox of this period is that on the one hand you have a drive towards more and more sovereign states on the other hand there is no such thing as a purely independent state anymore the thing that has always attracted me therefore would be that we could advocate a north african federation which would be tied together Economically and for other development projects, and that Algeria would find its place as part of that rather than as a purely independent state.
2: Oh, I see. A chance to reorder the grand chessboard by undermining the idea of national sovereignty and proposing ever greater unions between what was once sovereign states. Oh, what a wonderful idea. And certainly we could see how that would lead to a wonderful and harmonious New World Order of interdependency under a global non-democratic system. And for those who think that might have been an isolated part of Henry Kissinger's thinking in the time, or since then, and his thinking about the New World Order, it most certainly was not. And another indication of that style of thinking made itself apparent in his third book, The Troubled Partnership, which was released in 1965 and in which he advocated, quote, a united Europe with federal supranational institutions as the precondition for an Atlantic partnership or regional government, end quote. Hmm, I see. So in the 1960s, he was arguing for a European Union, and we do know that he is a director of the American Friends of Bilderberg and is a yearly attendee of the Bilderberg Group, And we do know that some of the founding documents of the Bilderberg Group, as revealed by the BBC, indicate that there was a concerted effort ever since the group's founding in the 1950s to create a European Union. And we do know the former EU commissioner, Etienne Davignon, admitted to the EU Observer in March of this year that the uh, Bilderberg Group had in fact been essential in the formation of the Euro but one would have to be a crazy conspiracy theorist to suggest that there is a small group of elite who are actually puppeteering world events to bring about a type of world government. A crazy conspiracy theorist like David J. Rothkopf, the former managing director of Kissinger & Associates, who wrote a book last year called Superclass, the global power elite in the world they are making, which argues that there are 6,000 elitists in the world who wield international authority through their various groups and spheres of influence and who are in fact shaping the world into a new global order and of course David Rothkopf of Kissinger and Associates thinks this is a wonderful idea because of course the superclass can wield their supranational authority and dictatorial powers for the good of mankind, right? Right? Well, perhaps I get ahead of myself. At any rate, returning to Henry Kissinger and his early years and accomplishments, well, of course, a lot is now known about his ignoble role during the Nixon years and his crimes against humanity and the war crimes for which he is still wanted in many jurisdictions around the world, and the reason why he cannot travel to many countries around the world because he would be instantly arrested and indicted for war crimes including, of course, his participation in the 9-11 coup in Chile in 1973 that saw the death of democratically elected Chilean president Salvador Allende. And, of course, that was something in which Henry Kissinger was deeply implicated One of the most egregious crimes that Henry Kissinger committed in this era, but one for which he is never brought to task by anyone in the controlled corporate media or anyone in the controlled political paradigm, is, of course, his penning of NSSM 200.
6: In December of 1974, the U.S. government made Third World Population Reduction a central national security issue. The operation plan titled... National Security Study Memorandum 200 was simply a regurgitation of the British Commission on Population created by King George VI of England in 1944, which openly stated that populous third world nations posed a threat to the international elite's monopoly of global power. The Kissinger-authored U.S. plan targeted 13 key countries where massive population reduction was called for. Kissinger recommended that IMF and World Bank loans be given on condition that nations initiate aggressive population control programs, such as sterilization. Kissinger also recommended that food be used as a weapon, and that instigating wars was also a helpful tool in reducing population. And
2: the completely illegal bombing of Cambodia during the Vietnam War
1: once the Paris Peace Accords were signed in December of 72, um, <clears throat> that, was, that ended the American direct involvement in Vietnam.
7: But to preserve peace with honor, Nixon and Kissinger decided to defend the anti-communist regime in Cambodia. It was to be a secret mission, airstrikes against communist forces directed by the American Embassy in Phnom Penh.
1: It made free the American um, Air Force. They could not bomb in Laos, they could not bomb in Vietnam, so that began the the incredible bombing of Cambodia. And this is when the number of bombs dropped equaled the the amount of bombs dropped on Japan during World War II.
7: Elizabeth Becker covered the war in Cambodia from 1972 to 1974.
1: We would be able to hear um, the conversation between the pilot, the American pilot in the air, and the American Embassy, which was illegally directing the airstrikes. We couldn't understand why there were so many civilian casualties in this war. Why were they hitting all these civilians in villages? It was every nightmare of how you fight a war. From
7: 1969 to 1973, more than 500,000 Cambodians died. By 1974, the bombing had disrupted the nation's agricultural system and a famine ensued. Over two million refugees poured into overcrowded cities.
5: American policy in those years towards Cambodia helped create the conditions, perhaps the only conditions, in which the Khmer Rouge came to power.
7: The Khmer Rouge drew strength from the chaos of the country. When they seized power in 1975, they forced populations of entire cities back to the countryside. Then they began a policy of exterminating their enemies in execution grounds that came to be known as killing fields. By 1979, another three million Cambodians
5: had lost their lives. No one knew what the Khmer Rouge were going to do. It's quite wrong to blame the United States for the murderousness of the Khmer Rouge. That's a disgracefully dishonest thing to try to do. but. The carelessness with which the United States treated Cambodia as a sideshow to Vietnam
3: did lead to disaster to Cambodia. Congress authorized money for bombs in South Vietnam and they went into Cambodia. There's a criminal act for you. You know, lying. And therefore I think anybody who died in Cambodia you could argue criminally that that they were guilty of murder one. People did, nobody authorized them to bomb Cambodia.
1: There was no American war in Cambodia before President Nixon and Dr. Kissinger.
3: That is totally incorrect. I think we inherited a tragedy. We attempted to and succeeded in extricating America with honor from this tragedy.
1: Oh, we inherited it. No, you did not inherit it. You created, you were the designers of the Cambodian policy.
2: That was a clip from The Trials of Henry Kissinger, a 2002 documentary that very ably documents and details the various war crimes of the unindicted war criminal Henry A. Kissinger. And it is, of course, based on a best-selling book by well-known writer and political commentator Christopher Hitchens, The Trial of Henry A. Kissinger. And, of course, Hitchens is absolutely spot-on with his very penetrating critiques of Henry Kissinger and his very open portrayal of Kissinger as a war criminal who needs to be brought to trial for his disgusting conduct during his period in influence in the White House. But, oh, Christopher Hitchens, how right you are about Henry Kissinger on this issue, and how utterly, stunningly, bafflingly wrong you are about 9-11. But, Of course, you know all about 9-11 and Henry Kissinger, don't you, Mr. Hitchens?
5: President Bush signed legislation today creating an independent commission to investigate the September 11th attack on America. The president named a supporter, Dr. Henry Kissinger, secretary of state in the Nixon and Ford administrations, to head the panel.
0: He has a penchant for secrecy, which is not what's needed here. There are questions about his role in Vietnam, his role in the coup in uh, Chile.
6: Several family members approached Kissinger and requested a meeting at his office in New York. Prior to the meeting, Kristen Breitweiser conducted a thorough investigation of Kissinger's potential conflicts of interest.
0: Probably much to the chagrin of some of the people in the room, Lori asked some very pointed questions. Would you have any Saudi American clients that you would like to tell us about? And he was very uncomfortable, kind of twisting and turning on the couch. And then she asked whether he had any clients by the name of bin Laden. And he just about fell off his couch. Former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger stepped down from the position Friday
3: we thought the meeting went well.
2: That's right. Henry A. Kissinger was the man who was originally appointed to head the 9-11 commission by George W. Bush when he finally caved into political pressure from the Jersey girls and other 9-11 victims' family members to have an independent commission to investigate the 9-11 tragedy. And keep in mind, that commission was not set up for a full 18 months after 9-11 itself. Absolutely and completely unprecedented with any commission of its kind in United States history. But of course the administration has nothing to hide, right? Well, interestingly enough, even Christopher Hitchens doesn't believe that. And I'll include a link to a, a video which we really must see where Christopher Hitchens is confronted by this fact about the 9-11 Commission on C-SPAN, and he goes on to take credit himself for having gotten Henry Kissinger to decline the position as head of the 9-11 Commission, because, as Hitchens puts it, he was the one who pointed out that Kissinger would have to reveal his clients if he accepted this position, And Hitchens even goes on to state that any time a president appoints Henry Kissinger to head a commission, that is an out-and-out admission that they are appointing a cover-up commission, and then stunningly, bafflingly, goes on to defend the 9-11 commission and its findings. Indeed. At any rate, what George W. Bush's curious appointment of Henry A. Kissinger as cover-up, I mean, commission chairman for the 9-11 Commission investigation, should tell us is that indeed the past, as we have stressed many times before in this podcast, does live on through the present and into the future and often quite literally lives on with the same cast of characters playing an influential role in decade after decade after decade through administration after administration after administration. And of course, Henry Kissinger is absolutely no different. So perhaps it should not have come as much of a surprise, although apparently it did, when in 2006, veteran investigative journalist Bob Woodward of Watergate fame revealed that... Surprise, surprise, lurking behind the Bush presidency and advising Bush on the modern Vietnam all along was, of course, Heinz Kissinger. Cheney
4: stunned Woodward by revealing that a frequent advisor to the Bush White House is former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, who served Presidents Nixon and Ford during the Vietnam
7: War. He's back. In fact, Henry Kissinger is almost like a member of the family. If he's in town, he can call up, and if the president's free, he'll
4: see him. Woodward recorded his on the record interview with Cheney, and here's what the vice president said about Henry Kissinger's clout.
6: Of the outside people that I talk to in this job, I probably talk to Henry Kissinger more than anybody else. He comes by, I guess, at least once a month, and I sit down with him. And the
7: same with the president. Yes, I understand. Israel, big fan of his. Now, what's Kissinger's advice? In Iraq, he declared very simply victory is the only meaningful exit strategy. This is uh, so fascinating. Kissinger's fighting the Vietnam War again because, in his view, the problem in Vietnam is we lost our will. That we didn't stick to it. So Henry Kissinger is telling George W. Bush, stick to it, stay the course. That's right, it's right out of the Kissinger playbook.
2: Victory is the only meaningful exit strategy. Yes, you can't make this up. Henry Kissinger is indeed once again fighting the Vietnam War, this time in Iraq. Or at least he was during the presidency of George W. Bush. But now we know that, of course, the puppeteer-in-chief has fallen to the position of Zbigniew Brzezinski. And, of course, we examined that in some detail back in episode 63 of this podcast... And we know that indeed the direction of the Obama administration has changed slightly from the Bush administration insofar as the focus, at least as far as the media and the hype is concerned, is less on Iraq and more on Afghanistan and Pakistan. So of course that front is now becoming the major theater of operations for the U.S. armed services. But It hardly needs to be stressed that this does not represent a fundamental change in the agenda of creating a new world order, it simply represents a dichotomy within the new world order itself about how best to achieve the goal of a complete world dictatorship ruled by and for the interests of a tiny elite. And in case that needs to be fleshed out in any more detail, I will include a link to a very, very interesting interview that took place in June of 2007, conducted by Charlie Rose and featuring Henry Kissinger, Zbigniew Brzezinski, and Brent Scowcroft, all, of course, former national security advisors, and all of them, including Charlie Rose, Bilderberg members. And yes, to put that into perspective for people out there who may not really grasp the significance of that... There are 125 or so people in the entire world who are invited to the annual Bilderberg Conference, and of those 125, this interview features three of those attendees being interviewed by another of those attendees. And their conversation obviously centers on global geopolitics and the way in which the American Empire should act in order to ensure its supremacy for another century. So... I think people can see at face value exactly what type of New World Order we're talking about. And yes, you can hear Bilderberger Charlie Rose starting the conversation by asking them what type of New World Order is coming into view. (sighs) Sometimes it's simply tiring to just document the same thing over and over and over. But what can one do when that's all they ever feed us? At any rate, it's a fascinating conversation in numerous respects, not only because Brent Scowcroft says that people are becoming politicized through information technology, which gives them access to things beyond their own community, and for the first time, people are really becoming nationally and even internationally politically aware and involved, and he equates that to terrorism and says it's a bad thing. And... It's also interesting because of a faux debate between Kissinger and Brzezinski about the way in which to proceed in global geopolitics, with Brzezinski saying that it's not good to get involved in quagmires like Iraq and Iran, whereas Kissinger says that once you're committed to such a theater of operations, you have to maintain the course until victory is achieved. And it's an interesting faux debate, and I do stress the fact that it's quite phony, because, of course, these are two representatives basically arguing for different strategies to attain the exact same goal, and ultimately they're on the same team. But it's like they're competing for the job of team captain, or really assistant captain, or chief benchwarmer, or whatever position they really occupy in the actual global elite superstructure. But just to give a little bit of backing to that, let's listen to this very short clip, which makes it quite apparent that, in fact, the whole thing is a charade, and admittedly a charade.
4: And I think we are really facing, as a country, a real risk of becoming bogged down in this larger spectrum of the global Balkans. And if we get bogged down, two things will happen. First of all, we're going to be largely alone. Most of the world will not be with us. A few client states, but that's all. And secondly, our global power will gradually be dissipated. Our global standing will be undermined. So we do face a very serious strategic historical challenge, which we need to think through, and regarding which we need to draw some lessons and be willing to change course. Okay, let me go, 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 Henry, but the lessons are what? The lessons are, that acting alone in a world that's alive and politically stirring is to condemn oneself to isolation and probably protracted warfare of a kind that can be dissipating. The kind of problem that we face in Iraq is a little bit the kind of problem that Israel faced in dealing with Hezbollah and the conflict, the theater of conflict enlarges
3: it's going to become more and more absorbing and more and more costly. The question is what does one mean by, by getting bogged down? We are there now. Uh, and consequences flow from that. Uh, in principle, one can say one shouldn't act alone. But once one is in the situation in which we are in Iraq, uh, uh, we have we cannot simply solve it by saying we should not get bogged down. Spig and I have been putting on a performance on uh, weekly television, (laughs) and so we have the script fairly well rehearsed. Uh,
2: Now, the dichotomy in strategies represented by the two arms of the New World Order, who are fronted by people like Brzezinski and Kissinger, was best represented in this year's Iranian elections, which we saw pumped up and hyped by the... Soros-funded and backed Twitter revolution that almost took place in Iran And that, of course, was documented in my previous article, Destabilization 2.0, which I would suggest people go back and read or reread, as well as my conversation with Paul Craig Roberts to see how that entire phenomenon was really constructed as part of Soros' open democracy movement. And, of course, Brzezinski is nothing more nor less than Soros' puppet in the same way that Kissinger is Rockefeller's puppet. And, again, these are merely two arms of the same agenda. But... When that Iranian Twitter revolution failed to overthrow the Ahmadinejad regime, Kissinger was already in there pumping up the war
3: rhetoric. I am sure that Americans would favor uh, the emergence from uh, the present situation of a truly popularly based government and it is very appropriate for the President to make clear that that is what he favours. Uh, now, if it turns out that, that it is not possible for a government to emerge in Iran that can deal with itself as a nation rather than as a cause, and if then we have a different situation, uh, and then we may uh, conclude That we must work for regime change in Iran from the outside. But if I understand the President correctly, he does not want to do this as a visible intervention in the current crisis.
2: Yes, Henry Kissinger, who is really the messenger for the Rockefellers who really do own the United States threatening Iran with military action, which of course is then backed up by the President of Change, Obama, and the American administration, which goes into overdrive to hype the Iran war rhetoric. Once again, things seem to be cooling down in that area, but of course it's always on the table and always on the back burner. And yes, we will see history continue to repeat with the same characters, the same crew, fronting the same people and fronting for the same interests and agendas over and over and over again until we wake up, stand up, and stop falling for these false dichotomies that we're placed into. The question is not between whether we want global hegemony through military power and dominance, or a global hegemony achieved through Machiavellian geostrategy. The choice is really between liberty and tyranny, between the people taking control of the political structures and systems and stopping the centralization of power in these non-democratic global institutions, And, of course, the alternative, which everyone on the other side of the issue, whether it be Kissinger or Brzezinski or Scowcroft or whoever it is, represents, and that is the ideology of globalism and the global hegemony of the financial oligarchs. Lest it needs to be put into perspective why it is important to attack even the puppets and the frontmen of the real ruling elite, like a Kissinger or a Scowcroft or Brzezinski, Let's turn to the current National Security Advisor, uh, to the Obama Change Administration, and the someone who is in a position to have real influence in the world we are living in, James L. Jones, who at the 45th Munich Conference on Security Policy on February 8th, 2009, said, quote, Thank you for that wonderful tribute to Henry Kissinger yesterday. Congratulations! As the most recent National Security Advisor of the United States, I take my daily orders from Dr. Kissinger filtered down through General Brent Scowcroft and Sandy Berger, who is also here. We have a chain of command in the National Security Council that exists today. End quote. The point is to expose and bring down this chain of command. It's time for the people to stop being ruled by the Rockefellers, and the Soroses, and those with money. And how do we do that? Well, exactly as Brent Scowcroft suggests in that Charlie Rose interview, it is through the very information technology which is enabling us to become interconnected and aware on an international political scale that we will affect the change that we want to see in this world through movements like We are change. So, I leave you today with we are change's confrontation of Heinz Kissinger. And let this be a message to the ruling elite that the masses are awakening, and we will resist the new world order. That's it for this week. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me, and asking you to join me again next week for episode 107 of the Corbett Report. Lessons in resistance, non-compliance.
3: Do you still feel
7: that the third world population is a major concern, the explosion, or is terrorism,
1: has that surpassed that now? The
2: two are connected?
1: Uh,
2: can you tell me
5: what the new world order, what you mean by the new world order? Right back here. It's bound to fail. It's the North American Union,
1: sir? National sovereignty will prevail.
0: Machiavelli told me for and favors young men. So I plucked my eyebrows and kept my belly thin. Ate more than my share. Got malnutrition friends. Gripped the scraps to the floor so the dogs can dig in. Those marvelous ends. Full of fashion trends adorning silk clothes as I walk among men. Forked tongue blend, negotiated with sin. No Napoleon can. men. So send your fattest swine, your three finest women. Your best cask of wine if your life is worth living. I am the Christian who discovered oblivion. Returned to the city and ruled with clenched fists, drenched in blood. Death to the skeptical. Gonna call this love conquer resurrected. Oh, where did the time go? Tend to think you're all psychos and crime lords, dime store cyborgs. Fickle as the wind's course, falling off your high horse, coming back for more. They say violence is the universal language. Put it practice it'll surely make you famous so if you want to make it you gotta do some strange shit protect the buddy nation from external infiltration the source of information won't speak unless the pipes or weather crack and information leaks so prepare for critique in the heart of your city I impact many times like a meteor freak it's truth that I seek abstraction belief mysticism paradox moments of irony the king of blasphemies always wins out a rhetoric slip between the lips of the crowd nationalistic and proud the state's a cardboard box bottom falling out and crime lords, dime store, cyborgs, fickle as the wind's course, falling off your high horse, coming back for more. There are certain inalienable rights, f- some, but to others just denied Wishing to soar on the dove's jaded wings Brittle as the ancient vase Crumble hopes and dreams Losing steam on credit-based economy Go team, it's all about the sodomy Honestly, apollo me, we're raping the future Trading quality for quantity This her needs a butcher, but I wouldn't hurt you. It's all genocide Ask a statesman his sleep, and he'll reply Death to posterity, let's widen the suture May God come down, and bless the producers In existence, it's fruitless Let this mind become useless Do this one last time, let the nation state Rise and thrive. Oh, where did the time go? still have time for you.
3: The average person thinks that morality can be applied as directly to the conduct of states, to each other, as it can to human relations. That is not always the case, because sometimes statesmen have to choose among evil.